electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Wilfred, no problem. Important times, certainly in scary times and an incredible day. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Well, CBC now picks up our coverage of what was another incredible day on Wall Street. Welcome, everybody, and good evening. I'm Brian Sullivan. Stocks, they fell hard again today. Economic fears and many unknowns rattling investors. The Dow falling another 1,300 points. It now closed below 20,000. The Dow is now down a mind-blowing 10,000 points from its all-time highs hit just last month. Let's put that in context. It took the Dow 103 years to first hit the 10,000 mark, and now we have lost 10,000 in fewer than 30 days. Trading was halted again today after we fell 7% in the afternoon, but the pause did not refresh. Selling continued, and the average return of an S&P 500 stock today was a loss of nearly 8%. Oil also crushed, falling 24%. Oil now at an 18-year low. Shares of Chevron, they took it hard falling 22% today. But there was one potential bright spot in all the sell-off, a name that you know actually hitting a new all-time high in today's market. We're going to bring you that name ahead. But first, we've got to get more on that historic sell-off and the big breaking news for the NYSE. Bob Pisani and Bob, we just heard Stacey Cunningham. Uh, We just heard that interview. Um, Obviously, this is nearly not... nearly unprecedented. I think back to 9-11, I'm sure there were a few other times during war. Uh, What's your take? The stock market has closed many times over the years, Brian, and during World War I for several months, during 9-11, but that's the stock market closing. The NYSE floor has not closed before and continue trading electronically independent. So this is a first, I think it was the right decision, we did get a, uh, a, uh, a positive coronavirus test uh, down here. Uh, so let's just talk about the markets and what's going on here. Uh, another week open, but markets were down about 6%. Uh, Persian Square Bill Ackman did come on on CNBC to declare a gradual shutdown was uh, not working and that America needs what he calls a 30-day spring break. The emotional moment uh, came when he said, I'm not going to kill my father. I went into lockdown almost a month ago to save my father's life. Lost in the interview was uh, Mr. Ackman's insisted that he was a buyer of stocks, particularly of Hilton. That caused a lot of people a big surprise, but it was all lost. Bill Miller also came on our air saying that there were four great buying opportunities in his life. This was the fifth one here. So that moved the S&P, Ackman's comments, down to 7%. That halted trading, as you heard from Brian, hit the circuit breakers. Unfortunately, the halt was 2351 that was the December 24, 2018 low. And when we reopened, we broke through that. That was sort of the last technical indicator that was out there. We rallied big time into the close, though. 900 points on the Dow, likely on news that the Senate passed the House's coronavirus relief bill and will send it to President Trump. Boeing, a big focus, of course, here, down another 20 percent. They were seeking access to $60 billion in public and private liquidity. By the way, the market cap for Boeing, about $56, $57 billion right now. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob. Hey, Bob, 
Thinking about you guys. Will for everybody. Be well. All right. Let's get more now reaction to this news. Joining us on the CNBC Newsline is Bob Greifeld. He is the former CEO of the NASDAQ market site. And, and Bob, the NASDAQ, by the way, is, is not what the NYSE is. I mean, this is more of an office building with the electronic platform here. Do you envision this building closing? No, I do not. I would say with respect to the New York Stock Exchange closing, you know, most of the activity, the vast preponderance of it is electronic. So I don't think there's much significance to this move. Do you think that it's smart to wait until Monday? Well, you know, that's for them to know with great details. Obviously, we wish it was a little bit sooner. uh, But certainly, if you want to make sure all the BCP plans of all your customers are in place, I can understand the wait. You know, we look at this market here and Charles Schwab reporting that, you know, they're having difficulty getting people to work from home, not because they can't get them, because there's all kinds of issues. I've been talking about it for more than a week. Just technology, network security. Are you confident that the markets are working, not just buying and selling equities, but the markets are working at the derivatives, structured product, arbitrage, all those levels effectively enough right now, Bob? Well, I think what you see is somewhat a replay of 2008, where the equity markets, the electronic markets, are truly performing very well. Nobody likes the level in that 10,000-point drop, which you highlight is truly breathtaking. But the fact is the plumbing, the infrastructures has worked. The clearinghouses, the exchanges, the broker-dealers have done a phenomenal job. When you move down the automation curve, where your markets were more bespoke and you have more face-to-face contact required, whether it be on the telephone uh, or direct in front of each other, those have not done as well. And you can broadly characterize that as the credit markets always have difficulties of performing these kind of times. And I would have to give credit to the Fed. In a certain way, they're taking the playbook that was developed back in 2008, but they're compressing the time frame in terms of where uh, how they're implementing it. And for them to put in the commercial paper facility as soon as they did, I think is quite impressive as somebody lived through 2008 and waited a quite a long time for that to happen. Any indication, Bob, I'm sure you're talking to people all day long, of where this incredible volume is coming from. You know, we know there's a lot of leverage out there. There's a lot of these sort of collateralized products, passive investing ETFs. Why have we seen such insane volatility and volume? Well, I think the self-evident answer is probably the best answer, right? We're facing our first global pandemic in 100 years, and people do not have any real clue how to respond to it. And the same investor or class of investors could have a point of view one day and have an entirely different point of view uh, you know, two days later. So I think we're seeing that. So you can't pinpoint any particular class of investors. It's the marketplace. It's the world. It's the global economy. We have a global pandemic, and people have to process that. And we don't have the toolkit in our mental capacity right now to really kind of get our uh, head around it. Where do you see this whole thing going? Well, I think when you look at what the Fed is doing and what the administration and Congress is trying to do, I think you have to applaud them. They're moving at rapid speed, but that's not directly addressing the problem, right? So we're going to be in this period of time until such time we get a therapeutic or a vaccine, right? That is the underlying problem. We have many, many symptoms out there, but we've got to hope that our scientists come forward and certainly what Regeneron announced yesterday, uh, and they have great credibility, certainly with their work with Ebola 
you know, we can be heartened by that. But you're not going to get past this until the science delivers us either very strong therapeutics or a vaccine. Bob Greifeld, former head of the NASDAQ. Bob, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Take My care. pleasure. Thank All you. Right. I've got some breaking news out of Washington, D.C. For that, let's get to Kayla Tausch. Kayla. Brian, House, Senate and Treasury now trying to turn that $1 trillion economic stimulus proposal into legislation that could see a vote as soon as Friday, according to aides on Capitol Hill. Earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said uh, this is a time-sensitive and urgent issue. I would recommend senators stay uh, around, close. Uh, Just how long it will take to get through these steps is unclear. But as everyone knows, we are moving uh, rapidly because the situation demands it. After a paid leave package passed today, this would be the third and biggest wave of money unlocked to combat the coronavirus. As it stands now, it would include $500 billion in direct cash payments to Americans beginning April 6th, about $100 billion in injections for hard-hit industries, and about $300 billion in loan programs for small business. The size and the urgency of this is evocative of the bank rescue package from the financial crisis. When the first vote on that TARP package failed... The markets fell 7%. That is a move that pales in comparison to the moves that we've seen in the market this week. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told lawmakers if they did not pass this trillion-dollar stimulus bill, then unemployment in this country could hit 20%. Earlier today, President Trump was asked whether he saw that as a possibility. I don't agree. That's an absolute total worst-case scenario. Uh, but, uh, no, we don't look at that at all. Thank you. My second We're nowhere near it. A's on Capitol Hill say that uh, while the expectation was after this stimulus package passes later in the week or early next week, that lawmakers would be able to head home to their districts. But people I talked to this afternoon, Brian, said now they're leaving the option open that this is nowhere near the amount of money they'll need to unlock. Uh, Kayla Tausche in D.C. Kayla, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, now let's get back to the markets and your money and bring in two guys you know, Guy Adami and Tim Seymour, and we're glad you guys are here with us. You know, Guy, listen, I I tweeted out sort of only half-jokingly that this was maybe at the end of the day the best-feeling 6% drop that I'd ever seen. Of course, you don't see many 6% drops, but was anything about the price action in the last 30 minutes to an hour giving you any reason to be a little bit more optimistic? Well, it's better than, you know, dropping an additional 6% of where we are. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, it was, given the choice, it's, it's better, and I am somewhat optimistic. I mean, not that levels matter at all, but I think a lot of people have talked about that 2350 or so level. I think I heard Bob Pisani mention it. So the fact that we closed above it is encouraging. What I'll be more encouraged by and I'm, I'm sure Tim has thoughts on this as well, is, again, if we can somehow, if the volatility in the Treasury bond market were somehow uh, start to wane, and whatever the level of stability is, and I'm not suggesting I know, but if we can sort of get there and find stability, I think that's when the stock market can find its footing. If you remember back in February of 2016, I want to say it's February 8th, I don't remember the exact day, but... If it was a day the S&P traded down to 1810, that day after the market closed, we got three pieces of news. We got news that Jamie Dimon himself 
was buying J.P. Morgan stock. I think at the time the stock was about $54 a share. I think we got some news out of OPEC, which was somewhat bullish for an oil market that had been cratering, and we had some sort of bond offering with Deutsche Bank. And I think those three things in confluence put a floor in the market. I think what you really want to see, short of Mr. Buffett announcing something, is some of these CEOs, not the corporations buying back stock, but some of these CEOs uh, putting their money where their mouth is. I think that would give people a lot of, well, I think it would give them some encouragement. Yeah, some encouragement, Tim, right? Would you agree with that? Just step up, get out there, and buy your own equity. Well, it certainly is a place where equities are looking attractive relative to just multiples that they've traded at for the obvious reasons. The things that we need to see, though, are the mass liquidation that's been going on in the market is a function of where investors came into this with bigger balance sheets. I mean the professionals, and I mean also the retail investor. The growth in the market was massive. From the Fed on down, there's encouragement to take liquidity. What we're seeing now is... Markets need to simplify. Investors need to simplify. But more importantly, the gross is coming down. Some of this is forced liquidation. Every single asset class was down massively today. And that tells you. And the dollar, meanwhile, has moved 7.5% in seven days. And, and you know, what, what at one point was the dollar trailing off at the first sign of this um, is, is now showing a flight to quality. Um, the implications for this, unfortunately, are, are devastating yeah. for uh, anybody that's, that's holding uh, essentially foreign currency debt. We've seen currencies around the world blowing out. But again, as Guy talked about, the, the, the Treasury market off another. Treasury market's off four, almost five points on the 10-year note in two days. Um, and, and that's extraordinary. Copper down 7%. Um, oil you talked about. So um, this is clearly, uh, you know, people being forced to delever uh, and those understanding that cash is probably the best place to be. You know, Guy Adami, we had Bill Miller on the exchange today, and he was talking about this is a buying opportunity. Bill's a long-term investor, one of the, if not the most successful active managers ever outside of Mr. Warren Buffett. He came on and said he thought it was a buying opportunity. I want you to listen and respond, sir. Here you go. There have been four great buying opportunities in my adult lifetime. Uh, The first was in 1973 and 74. The second was in 1982, the third was in 1987, and the fourth was in 2008 and 2009. And this is the fifth one. So I think this is an an exceptional buying opportunity. I don't mean to put all the money in it at at once, but I do think layering it in right now is is the way to go. You agree with that? We lost. I mean, do do you think that that this and not you're not calling a bottom? No one's asking Guy Dami, say today's the bottom, whatever it is. But can you dollar cost average your way out of this over the next couple of years? Well, who's he calling it a bottom for? I mean, I think, you know, respectfully, a lot of people at home right now are not necessarily worried if it's a buying opportunity for stocks. They're trying to figure out, quite frankly, you know, what is, what is my job going to look like in a month from now? So I, I think there's a very good chance that within, the, within however many percent, he's making a lot of sense. But I think the real issue for folks is, you know, we – we need some stability, we need some calm, and we need the powers that be to sort of assuage a lot of the concerns that are not just necessarily, you know, Apple's gone from $323 yeah. a share to $240 a share. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to keep it real. So I respect him a great deal, but, you know, can I comment on that? I mean, you know, I, I, I appreciate what he's saying, but I think, you know, right now they're bigger fish to fry. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, Tim, you, you look at his comments and you think, and what he said is people are being forced to liquidate. When you hear terms like forced liquidation, you said it as well, it's, that means things that have more value maybe down the road are being dumped out. And right now, nobody has any idea what that is because everybody's running down the same street. Yeah, and, and again, you know, Bill Miller, who's uh, got a track record to, to, to prove it, um, and you know, a friend of our shows. But you know, I, I mean, long only managers, um, you know, some, sometimes there's there's an opportunity to uh, to be buying weakness, and there's a lot of folks that don't have the ability to buy weakness here, um, and I, I think that's you know part of where the the, the fear is. Um, look, there, there, as we've seen in the market today, there, there, there were individual names uh, of companies that I think ultimately the market made assessments either of where their business model is going to be both now and right after uh, the end of, of uh, the near-term part of the pandemic. Um, and then also you, you have to be looking at every company based upon a leverage profile that you think you can understand now. But again, we're talking about companies that may not have revenues coming in. Uh, in any meaningful way. I mean, obviously, the airline industry is 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 of an extreme, uh, but there are a, a number of different industries where, um, if you look at, and Cowan's done some great work on this as it relates to uh, some of the some of the airline industry. You're, you're not going to see them get back to uh, 2019 actual revenues until you get. Uh, into 22, 23. Yeah. So the leverage profile is critical. The credit markets are talking right now. The leverage loan market was down uh, 10 points day over day. Uh, and this is the part that it should be, uh, I think, where a lot of investors should not be weighing into companies where they can't understand the profile, even though they're down dramatically. Well, Cisco, which ended you know, their fiscal quarter with $13 billion in cash, um, and trades at probably, I don't know, a, a 13 or 14 times free cash flow yield, um, has a balance sheet that I think is, is pretty interesting. Um, but Apple has a balance sheet that's pretty interesting. Um, and, and those are names that I think have been more resilient. Uh, if you look at some of the other, you know, the Chinese Internet names, and I mean, not you know, going down the curve, just look at Alibaba and how resilient that stock has been. So um, I think that's how you have to be navigating the environment. All right, Guy and Tim, we always appreciate your insight, valuable insight and experience. Thank you very much. All right, of course, be sure to catch our special report tonight. Markets in turmoil. They are in turmoil. 7 o'clock Eastern time today. All right, coming up, you're going to hear from Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass. He will join us exclusively. We'll get his take on the sell-off and maybe some reasons to be optimistic. Yes, optimism from the man who called the subprime crisis. Plus, crude in a free fall. Chevron losing a fifth of its value today. And we have an oil company founder coming up who says the industry needs to shut it down and shut it down now. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Let's get back now to Sue Herrera at CNBC HQ with the very latest on the global fight against COVID-19. Sue. 
Brian, thank you. And there you see the number of confirmed cases, 214,000. And as the new numbers come in, the State Department is suspending all routine immigrant and non-immigrant visa services in most countries due to the virus. A State Department spokesperson did not mention which or how many countries are affected. Emergency visa services will continue as resources allow. No date was given for when regular visa services will resume. The major hotel industry trade group is now projecting 3.9 million hotel and lodging jobs will be lost due to the coronavirus outbreak. Already, that group says the economic impact of the virus is worse than 9-11 and the 2008 recession combined. The group is calling on the government for urgent assistance to stop job losses. Toyota is joining other car makers in announcing its halting production in the U.S. because of the coronavirus. But Toyota says it will close for just two days to do a thorough cleaning of its facilities. Honda is shuttering its North American plants for six days. The big three automakers are shutting down through the end of the month. And state and local officials are pulling out all the stops to spread health warnings about the virus. The South Carolina Department of Transportation got very creative. They're using their electronic highway signs to give safety messages and provide hashtags and web links so that the drivers can get more information. Brian, you're up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Suhura, thank you very much. Well, as our fight against COVID-19 ramps up here, we are looking to lessons learned from China and Italy to give us more insight on the fight. Meg Terrell joining us now with more on that and where we stand from the studio. Terrell, Meg. Hi, Brian. Well, as we are all doing this social distancing, working from home to try to flatten the curve, RBC's team, led by Kenan McKay, uh, did some modeling looking at what we can learn from China, Italy, and other places. And we've got some of his graphs recreated here for you. So the red line here are the total cases in China. The blue line are the global cases, which clearly are now accelerating as China has managed to flatten its curve. Now, if you look at the beginning of that graph, you start to see where China implemented the lockdowns in Wuhan and Hubei province. Now, uh, they estimated RBC, it was about 25 days from that lockdown, that quarantine, uh, until we started to see new case numbers start to slow down. And they do point out that the Lunar New Year uh, was around that time. And remember, everybody was very concerned at that time that all the travel people were doing was going to exacerbate the spread of the disease. He says, Kenan McKay says, that actually may have helped because it enabled people to not be working and to actually stay at home, kind of like what we're trying to do now. Now, as we look at the number on when things get really bad. Uh, That is where RBC is looking at Italy. They have graphed the mortality rate in Italy versus the patients there getting intensive care. Now, the blue line is the mortality rate, and the intensive care percentage is the red line. When the number of uh, cases gets high enough, that puts such a pressure on the intensive care unit. Uh, When that gets to be about 10% and fewer of patients, because there are so many overwhelming the intensive care unit, that is when you start to see the mortality rate uh, spike, unfortunately, uh, to now it's between 5 and 10% uh, coming out of Italy. So what does this mean for the United States? Well, if they take those numbers and those algorithms and we take the number of ICU beds and the capacity we have in this country, they model uh, in the base case scenario, which is the orange line there, we could start to see that strain on our ICU capacity in the beginning of April. And that's if we take even stronger measures than we are right now in terms of social distancing, guys. Oh, really interesting and important look there. Meg Terrell, properly socially distancing. Meg, thank you very much. Be well. We'll talk to you soon. 
Quiet on deck. Kyle Bass called the subprime crisis back in 2007, but now he may have a reason to be a little more optimistic about this global fight. He's here. Plus, does the oil industry need to take the unprecedented steps to keep itself from imploding? A man who sold out of the oil business at just the right time will join us on that. As crude down 17%. We're back after this. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. We are coming up right here at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time here at the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. And if you're just joining us, it was ugly out there again. Stocks plunging again. The Dow dropping 1,338 points to under 20,000. That wipes out all the gains since the election. Trading was temporarily halted as markets fell 7% in the afternoon. Let's put this move into context from the top. It took the Dow average 103 years to first hit 10,000. It took it fewer than 30 days to lose 10,000 points. Let's talk more about all of this with Kyle Bass. He is founder and CIO of Heyman Capital Management. He also, of course, called the subprime crisis, been active out there talking about China as well. Kyle, we do appreciate you joining us uh, exclusively here on CBC. Thank you very much. Uh, is there any re- you're a guy that made his living and made his money uh, watching the markets go down, but you are a fan of this country. Do you see any reason to be optimistic in any way right now? <laughs> well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. It's good, good talking with you. I look. I think that one thing the president uh, and his, and the administration, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, the, uh, have done that has really impressed me is you know, look, we got the this bill, this one point three trillion dollar spending bill through the House, through the Senate this afternoon in a ninety to eight uh, uh, vote, and we're talking about one point three trillion dollars. If you think back to the financial crisis, it took a long time. Uh, it took months to get everyone on board with TARP, uh, and then uh, expanding TARP's capacity took many different inputs from many different players, the President, the Treasury Secretary, and Congress. Here, here we've, we've actually moved some spending bills through in light speed as far as Washington's concerned. Um, so you have the Treasury guaranteeing money market funds. You have uh, the commercial paper facility in place. You have $150 billion going to distressed industries, $50 billion going to airlines. It, that's impressive, Brian. But I think what's most important, uh, I think, to the people of the United States is, you know, these things do happen. Things like this Chinese virus come into the world, and they ravage the world, and then they leave. We develop some sort of herd immunity. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I've read enough white papers on this to be just slightly Kyle, you must have read the same paper that I read last night or two nights ago where they talked about that new concept of herd, H-E-R-D, immunity. 
uh, and basically building up that thing. L- listen, I, I, we've never had it happen in our lifetimes. The Hong Kong flu, the last real big one, was 1968 and 69. Before that, you got to really go back to 1918, 1919. So mm-hmm. obviously neither of us knows what's going to happen. But from a financial perspective, it sounds like you're thinking the government, you know, whether we can be critical here or there, is doing the right things quickly. Yeah, I mean, look, whether or not whether or not the administration took this seriously enough in the first couple of weeks, you know, that's that that's neither here nor there anymore. Here we are today. They're they're pushing through things. Both Democrats and Republicans are uniting. One of the things that United States does best is we all come together in crisis and we work hard to get through it. And we're getting through it. And, you know, I heard some other uh, commentators on your show uh, earlier today talk about, you know, we're not the I don't think the government's asking people to send their kids to distant battlefields to, to fight in kinetic wars. They're asking everyone to stay home for a month. I, I, I think everyone can pull that off. And for the people that are laid off and, and live paycheck to paycheck, these spending bills should help uh, the rent abatements and the mortgage payment uh, of uh, deferrals should definitely help. Now, they're not going to be able to help every single person, but they're doing a hell of a job very quickly to help. The other thing that's going on, Brian, is if you read enough white papers, you see there are drugs out there that have worked, that have worked to help head off the duration and severity of, of this Chinese virus. And yeah. One of them uh, is is one called chloroquine phosphate, and that's something that South Korea used to to really blunt the the growth of that of the disease over there. China's using it. It's in it's in white papers from Pakistan to China to South Korea to now in the United States and Canada. You know, this is a an anti-malarial drug that already has FDA approval. I think we'll see that rolled out soon. I think that Gilead has a very promising drug out there uh, that's showing in clinical trials to be. Very very effective if, if, if it's caught early uh, to, to lessen the symptoms. So when I look at this, whether this takes two months, three months, or four months, whatever the number is, do uh, we see peak deaths and then, and then a, a, a curve on the, on the downside? You know, the way that the market is, is trading today, whether you're looking at uh, cruise line, cruise stocks or airline stocks or uh, hospitality, all the hotel and motel stocks, and then and then our energy business is also under attack, you yep. know, by by Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's all happening at the same time, and I think uh, it feels to me like the panic is so much larger than it was in the financial crisis of 2008. And I think calmer heads will prevail. Uh, and I think the prices that are some of these things yeah. are transacting at today are are going to be literally uh, buys of a lifetime and, in, for our generation. And the one thing that you highlighted in 06 and 07, Kyle, was that there were underlying structural problems in the credit markets, in the financial markets and in the banks. When you look at it, do you see those same things today or is this an income statement problem, not a balance sheet problem? Yeah, the most fascinating thing about today as, as compared to the financial crisis is back in 2008, the, the banks were the center of the problem. And today, the banks are actually the center of the solution. The banks are very well capitalized today. Uh, we essentially re-equitized our entire banking system. Uh, in 2008, we had about a trillion of equity and about 17 trillion of assets in our banks. We pumped in almost $800 billion into the equity of our banks, and we 
and we, the United States, have the strongest banking system in the world. Europe, on the other hand, never recapitalized its banks, and they're in real trouble. And China's banks and Hong Kong's banks have yet to uh, be completely recapitalized. I think this crisis will force it. So you're going to see banking crises in Europe. You're going to see banking crises in Hong Kong and China. And the U.S. is going to be the anchor for the world this time. And that's why you believe, and I'll reiterate what you said, because I kind of jumped on top of you there, that there will be things that are buying opportunities of a lifetime out of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look, the the market has has done some. Uh, it, it was the biggest bull market, the longest running bull market in U.S. history prior to uh, the the Wuhan virus uh, really attacking our marketplace, uh, both literally and figuratively. Uh, and now it's created uh, dislocations in many, many, many different uh, companies that I think will be rectified on the back end. And again, I don't know how long it's going to take, but there are some really, just really interesting, you know, you, are, you can actually be a value buyer once again. I, I, I forgot what they look like in the last decade. There was a, st- I'm not going to ask you to come in individual stocks. There was a stock we could throw up called MFA. It's a REIT. I really hadn't heard of it before today. The stock fell 55% today. It's a mortgage-backed trader. When you look at the housing market and some of the, the MBS stuff that we talked about so much 12 and 13 years ago together, any similarities in any way on, I mean, is this going to shut down housing or do you think the credit markets will still be open enough that people are, while reluctant to maybe go to an open house, will buy a home. You know, I, I think with rates back to zero uh, and on the backside of this crisis, a, look, what's likely to happen if you just look forward, again, across the maybe the Grand Canyon of, of, uh, of, of, a, of a down move, um, what you're going to see, you're going to see zero rates. You're going to see enormous amounts of liquidity from the, all of the world's central banks. And um, I think they're going to let the economy's uh, inflation is going to run hot. Uh, and I think that's going to be a, uh, a really interesting housing market at that moment in time, i.e., I don't expect house prices to drop much, if any, uh, in the U.S. I say if any. They'll probably drop a little bit on the front end. Uh, but with zero rates and really cheap mortgages and a lot of liquidity on the back end of the crisis and everyone getting back to work, there'll be a real big surge. And um, look, look, when you think about the way the world's set up today, I always ask people, they say, well, why wouldn't you just go to cash is what they ask me. And I say, well, where else are you going to put your money? You're going to put your money in Europe where the banks are, are woefully undercapitalized. You're going to put your money in China that rules by law instead of a rule of law. You can put your money in Hong Kong where the banking sector is 900% of its GDP. There is no better place to put your money than the United States. And there's no better place to put your money in U.S. companies that are, that are going to make it through this. Now, look, there's some companies that are going to get leveled by this crisis, right? Companies that were over levered or as we see, look, if you're running an airline and you have your, your cost structure and your whole cost structure is unionized, you have the pilots, you have the flight attendants, you have the, you have the, worker, the uh, uh, gate workers, yeah. and then you've got all the slots you have to pay for and all of your equipment that you, de- that you probably have leased and have lease payments to make. And if you have zero revenue for a month or two, you're completely insolvent. So that's why the airlines are immediately asking for $50 billion, and, and maybe rightly so. Now, whether or not they spent $55 billion over the last 10 years buying back their stock, maybe we don't allow airlines to buy back their stock after we lend them money. Who knows? I don't know how that goes, 
But there are a number of things that we can do in these loans from a governance perspective that will make our country stronger over time. I hope so. And I think I think the one that we do need to do, too, though, is just let's just call it COVID-19, not Wuhan or China or, you know, coronavirus. Let's call it the COVID-19, Kyle. That, I think that'll bring us all together. Can we do that? Come up with a common name? You know, Brian, I'll agree with you on a lot of things, but, you know, changing the, the naming convention for viruses that's, that's gone on for the last hundred years, the point of origin has always helped people understand which virus it is. And the Chinese Communist Party has asked the world or actually really propagandized the world with this COVID-19. If we start naming diseases after numbers, uh, we're never going to remember what kind of disease it is. I understand. This, this, I just I want to make sure we don't make it. We, we don't take it to a country level. You know what I mean? Because this is the global fight. You would agree with that, right? You know, we call things West Nile virus. Why don't we call it the Wuhan flu? You know, we can call it whatever we want to call it. I'm not going to call it what the Chinese government wants me to call it. Fair enough. Kyle Bass, we do appreciate you joining us here exclusively on CBC. Kyle, thank you very much. All right. All right. Coming up, crude oil in a free fall. You're going to hear from one top energy market insider on what needs to happen in the industry for the bleeding to stop. Stick around. This is CNBC Breaking News. Market sell-off. All right, welcome back to our continuing coverage of the Wall Street sell-off. Check out the big move in energy. I mean, this has become now, folks, pretty much a daily story. I mean, just a couple of days ago, we were around $30. Crude oil plunging as much as 25% at its lows today to levels not seen since 2002. And, of course, back then... 20-some bucks was a different story. Let's talk more about the crude crash with Prevail Energy Principal David Ramsden-Wood, who has been very vocal out there uh, on calling for the industry to change. An industry, by the way, you were in, you sold your company, you are an oil guy, but you say, David, that this is an industry that needs to wake up and shut things down now. Yeah, hey, Brian, thanks so much for having me. Um, Obviously, what I had wanted was not uh, this catastrophic change, but I think it's giving us an opportunity. So I want to break the crisis down into two distinct points. Number one is we currently have demand destruction around the world. If you think about 100 million barrels a day is how much the world consumes, and with the shutdowns and the lockdowns that are now happening globally, it's very, very easy to see a scenario where we're down at least 20 million barrels a day. If you think about global demand for transportation, 64 million barrels a day of crude oil are used. 30% was what we estimated the Chinese were down in demand. So that's 20 million barrels a day. So separate and apart from everything else, all producers need to shut in at least 20% of their barrels today because there is physically nowhere to put it and no one to consume it. So what happens? I mean, a lot of people, they'll tweet at me and they'll say, why don't they just turn the tap off, David? Like, just stop pumping oil. Once you've got like a pump jack going and stuff, it's not that easy to just turn off the tap, is it? Well, I mean, so it is obviously more complicated than that, but in a way it is. So, so let's look at why producers are continuing to produce. There's, there's those who say they're hedged, and I would say that most are not hedged to 100% of their production levels. Therefore, every barrel above the level of their hedges is being sold at the spot market. Number two, I would go as far as to say that the reason they're keeping their wells on is that we have a crisis of balance sheets in this industry, which is that the cash flows were not meeting the debt covenants of many of the loans that the industry had taken. 
And so when you keep your barrels on at 30 or 40, it's because you're trying to maintain any level of cash flow to make it through the crisis of your debt levels. But at $20, and quite honestly, I am go- oil is going to fall to as close to zero as is required to get the Saudis, the Russians, the Canadians, and the American companies to shut in. And so what we need to be focused on in our industry is asking for leniency on covenants for the next 180 to 360 days so that the producer can shut in barrels for the demand. So is it that easy? No, but it's not because it's physically hard. It's because we have these debt covenants that are in place that you'll be technically in default of if you shut in your barrels, which is the right thing to do. What happens when all the tanks are full, David? Right now, you can, I mean, you can rent a ship and throw some oil on it or fill up an inventory. You know, the SPR, it's 80 million barrels till it's full. That's maybe a couple of months at the, at the fill rate of 785,000 barrels a day. What happens when and if the tanks are full? I, I mean, oil has to go to zero to lead to a total shutdown. And, and so, again, if we think about if we assume the world is oversupplied by 20 million barrels a day, in 30 days, we will have 600 million barrels of new oil and storage, which is almost the size of the SPR that we have. What's gonna, those are financial players buying those barrels to sell them back to the market when demand returns. So that means that the landowners who own the royalties are not getting paid. The government, the, the federal government who owns BLM leases that has royalties on these is not getting paid. All of that delta is going to the financial players. But at some point, if we don't shut in, storage gets full, oil goes to zero, and then producers shut in. There's no other mathematical way. All right. David Ramsden would prevail energy principle. David, you got out at the right time. Congratulations on that. We'll see what the industry does and if they listen. Thank you. All right. Coming up, hell is coming. That message from billionaire investor Bill Ackman. How bad the stock market economy may get. We'll talk more about that big interview coming up. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman ringing the alarm in an explosive interview earlier today on CNBC. Ackman saying the only cure for the coronavirus is for a worldwide shutdown. If you missed it, here's just part of what he said. Until a vaccine is manufactured, distributed, and injected, we will go through a depression-era period in the country. Take a look at Hilton stock. It's going to zero, okay, along with every other hotel company, because every hotel is going to be shut down. The only answer for the world is to shut the world for 30 days. The hotel industry and the restaurant industry will go bankrupt first. Um, Boeing is, you know, on the brink, okay? Boeing will not survive without a government bailout. We have to shut the borders, okay? And then 30 days later, the virus is gone in America, largely gone in America. And then we have to be careful, okay, for the next 12 to 18 months until we have a vaccine. The other way we save lives is by saving the economy. The U.S. Treasury does not have enough money to bail out every company. You can't borrow your way out of the problem, you can't lend your way out of the war. You've got to kill the virus. The closest I had was the financial crisis where I'm saying, you know, things are coming, you know, bad stuff's coming. Um, but this was a feeling like I've never had, like there's a tsunami coming. Corporate America is in shutdown right now, okay? It just doesn't know it yet. The White House is now responding to Bill Ackman's comments. Let's bring in Scott Wapner with more on the interview and the response. And I guess what's going on right now behind the scenes at the White House. 
That's right, Brian. Uh, thank you. Uh, Eamon Javers, our colleague, asked the White House about Bill Ackman's comments earlier today, and they responded with the following, and I'll quote. This is from a White House official. As President Trump has said, we are going to ensure that we take care of all Americans, including affected industries and small businesses, and that we emerge from this challenge stronger and with a prosperous and growing economy. So that's the word from the White House tonight. I should also tell you, Brian, that Forbes is out with a story this evening saying that Bill Ackman called Blackstone to apologize for some of his comments made broadly about private equity and how private equity would go bankrupt because its portfolio companies would go bankrupt. Ackman apparently, according to Forbes, calling Blackstone to apologize for those comments and saying that he is buying those shares tonight. I haven't independently confirmed that, but that's what Forbes is reporting tonight. Um, amazing thoughts from, from Ackman today. Um, some taking them as, as uh, too alarmist, uh, scaring people, blaming him for causing even more selling on Wall Street. Others tonight suggesting that uh, his call is right, that the government does need to do more. Uh, it was certainly talked about throughout the day today. He sought to clarify what he was saying at, at, at points after our interview, going back on Twitter today and suggesting that he is still positive on the market. He said he was buying a lot of stocks. He's long America. He just says it's predicated on the fact of the government doing even more than it's doing now. He thinks that it will and that will come out better on the other side. So whereas some took his comments as you know, a doomsday scenario. And I can understand why some people would certainly take it that way. Um, he is out saying today and tonight that he is long the market. He thinks there's going to be a massive bounce once this is all over. And that's the reason why he was buying stock. Brian? Yeah, Scott, it's certainly got a lot of attention. I know you'll talk more about it tonight, I believe, on the special. Scott well, Walker, thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Uh, let's bring in Dan Nathan. Uh, Dan, your reaction to Ackman's comments. I mean, is it, you know, hell to come? Well, listen, I mean, we're already feeling hell. We're seeing financial markets all over the world. They have crashed effectively, right? And so if you're looking at what also has gone on from the health and humanitarian crisis, it seems a bit hell for a lot of people out there, certainly people in China that were locked down months ago, certainly people in Italy and now um, in other parts of Europe. I, I just say this. I mean, I saw that interview. It was amazing. Scott has brought on some amazing, amazing guests, very influential people, investors, uh, people in corporate America over the last couple of months. And I think I think this was just a disaster, what, what he had to say here during market hours. Um, I thought it was particularly alarmist. I think he kind of um, placed um, tremendous amount of emphasis on what is likely to be a very low probability outcome. That's A. And B, I just think that the federal government, other than the U.S. Federal Reserve, has not even done anything yet. OK, so the fact that he's gone from zero to like, uh, uh, you know, a thousand in such a short period of time, I thought it was particularly alarmist. I don't think it's particularly helpful. I think if you're tuning into CNBC to get a sense for what's going on with the markets, what's going on with the economy. I don't think that those opinions are particularly um, useful. If you're looking for how to kind of weather this humanitarian and health crisis, then don't listen to guys like Bill Ackman, okay? I mean, here's a guy who's, um, you know, invested in the markets. That is his business. That's how he's made his millions or billions or however many he's got. And he sounded like a guy who was really worried about his funds going to zero, certainly some of the investments in it. So, listen, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know yeah. the guy. I, I'm not, I don't mean to take any shots at him. I thought it was entirely inappropriate for what he had to say on the network today. Um, and I think that investors, if you're looking for some guidance on the economy 
and, and, and on your investments in particular. Um, I just think you want to stay away from uh, views like that. I think you want to unfollow people like him on Twitter, okay. to be honest with you, and, uh, and, and stay tuned here. Okay, well, I'm glad you don't have any strong points of view on that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe he'll call in, who knows. But, Dan, was there, you know, we had these, not to this level, because we didn't have a health threat in 08, but, but, yeah. but we had these kinds of, uh, big statements that were made sort of near the bottom often in, you know, in 08. And today had this kind of weird feel to it as well. Do you feel like we are inching towards some kind of a bottom? Not asking you to call it. Yeah. Well, I, just, I, I feel listen, like we're getting these kind of big statements and weird I, things I said this happening. to you last night, Sully. You know, I can think back to other periods like this where markets have crashed and there are some fierce bear market rallies off lows. In 2001, there were two 20% rallies um, in that year that failed. They made new lows. In 2002, there was a 20% rally that failed. There was a new low before we bottomed. Um, 2008, there were some similar sort of price action. So there will not be a V bottom, people. I mean, I'm just telling you that right now. We've had one month, 30% decline in the S&P 500. When you look back at the past two market crashes in 01 to 02, and then you look at 07 to 09, it took two years for the market to bottom in each town. Now, what's unique about this is the velocity and the time in which we've sold off, but it doesn't mean that we're going to have a V reversal. It's going to still take some time here. So for all those people trying to call a bottom, saying it's the buying opportunity yeah. of the century, I think you better understand if you're buying now, there was very likely to be lower lows, and you better be comfortable with further losses from here. All right, Dan, Nathan, Dan, thank you very much. All right, with a few minutes left on the show, I want to leave you with a little bit of good news, I guess. Walmart. Hitting an all-time high earlier today. And you know what? Stocks aside, I want to send a big thank you from everybody here at CNBC to all the workers working all night, all day long, in tough conditions to keep the store aisles full for the stuff we care about. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. Jim is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.